we stand in the presence of God's word. We met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. When her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. They said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. The jailer woke up, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself. Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer fell down, kneeling, trembling before Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday's lection immediately preceded this one. You recall that Paul and Silas were early missionaries among Gentiles, that they had gone north from what you and I know today as Israel through what is today Lebanon to parts of westernmost Syria, and then had turned westward and had gone into what is modern-day Turkey. They had preached in several places in Asia Minor, until one day, Luke says, the Spirit of Jesus forbade them to move on to Bithynia, and that very night, Paul had a vision, a man in Macedonia waving, come over and help us. And immediately, we made plans to sail to Neapolis. Now, they were in Troas, they went to Samothrace. They sailed from there across the Straits of Bosphorus to Neapolis, a small port city, and then walked nine miles inland to a place called Philippi. Named for Philip of Macedon, who had lived almost 500 years before, father of Alexander the Great. When they arrived at Philippi, they could see that magnificent Roman road called the Via Ignatia, that in fact went all the way from Philippi to the city of Rome. They had moved from Asia into Europe to a different continent where there were not nearly so many Jews who would at least have told people there's only one true God. They were moving among polytheists, people who believed in multiple gods. Their first experience was pretty good. They went along the river one afternoon where some women were having a prayer meeting. They prayed with them, told them about Jesus of Nazareth, and one woman named Lydia invited them to come and stay at her home while they were in Philippi. But today's experience is not nearly so good. As they begin to teach and preach, 
that the one true God has revealed himself more clearly than ever before in a flesh and blood person named Jesus, a strange young woman started following them around. Luke says she had a spirit of divination. Paul treats her as one demon-possessed. After she's followed them for several days, in fact, one of the translations I read this week said she stalked them, screaming out behind them, These men are servants of the Most High God. They are slaves of the Most High God. Paul finally became very annoyed and turned and said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, come out of her. And immediately the evil spirit left. We're going to look at four main characters in the story this morning. Number one is the slave girl. You need to remind yourself that in ancient times, the victors took the spoils, and that meant human beings as well. When Babylon conquered Judah, they rounded up the best and brightest and took them back to be slaves. When the Persians conquered the Babylonians, they rounded up the best and brightest and made of them slaves. When Alexander and his Greeks swept around the Mediterranean world, they rounded up those they could and made of them slaves. When the Romans ruled over the Mediterranean world, they had thousands of slaves. We don't know where this young woman came from, but here she was in northernmost Greece called Macedonia in those days. She is a slave. She's a nuisance. But Paul speaks to her in the name of Jesus Christ, and her life is forever changed. Still a slave, but now absolutely free. You know the author Ann Patchett? She has a new novel that's just come out this month. It's called A State of Wonder. It's a story about a woman who works for a major pharmaceutical company in Minnesota whose company sends her to the Amazon rainforest in Brazil to look for another scientist who works for this company. She has gone to the Amazon River as far inland as possible and has sent back brief notes about finding a tribe where the women still bear children into their 60s and 70s. She's convinced they're able to do this because they're eating bark off of a certain kind of tree. Imagine what that would mean in the United States of America for people who are having trouble getting pregnant. It's fiction, folks. There is no such tribe. There are no such women. There are no such trees that we know of. It's fiction. But this is what I want you to hear. One reviewer asked Anne, why did you put this story of yours in the rainforest of Brazil? And I thought the answer was interesting. I see people in the United States of America with all of their little phones, all of their instant information pads, all of them queued in to the global positioning satellites, and they think they know everything and they know exactly where they are. I wanted to tell a story about people who don't know everything, who don't even know where they are. And all she has to do is knock out one cell phone, and she has it in the rainforest of Brazil. This slave girl 
did not know everything, did not know where she was, but the healing powers of God came even to her. Number two, second ones we want to look at are her owners. They are not happy. This young woman was believed to have an ability to tell fortunes. She was making them lots of money. Is this story believable? Absolutely. If you've ever been to Greece, if you've been to Greece, chances are a part of your itinerary was to go up into the mountains where the Delphi, the Oracle of Delphi, lived. And there were so many people who made that trek up into the hills and brought gifts to her so that she would tell them what was about to happen in their lives, that the ruins are a major tourist destination. Marble building upon marble building upon marble building. In fact, there are those who say there were so many animals being brought up that mountain that there was no way she could offer all of them in sacrifice. So she found a way to slip those animals down a secret way on the opposite side of the mountain, walk them right around, and sell them again. And they were marched up and down and around and sold again. She became wealthy. I said to our guide who was showing us around the ruins of Delphi, but Greeks don't still do that, do they? And he said, of course. He said, I was a very young man when the Germans landed and started to march through Greece. I quickly ran to a fortune teller to ask, which road should I take out of town? He told me, I took that road. I was captured two hours later. I spent two years in a prisoner of war camp. I said, so you quit going to fortune tellers? Oh, no, he said, I go every week. Can fortune tellers make a lot of money? They can in Greece. They could in ancient Philippi. And these men do not just say to the magistrates of their city, she's taken away our livelihood. They say they're plotting against our country, and they are Jews. They were anti-Semitic. The Jews came from Asia. This is Europe. Semites, not to be trusted, they were saying, they will try to overthrow our Roman colony. They were mean, hateful. You're familiar with the name David Mamet. If you're a playgoer, you are. A moviegoer, you are. Back in 1984, he wrote a play called Glengarry Glen Ross. I couldn't believe the language. I mean, I don't hear that kind of language every day myself, and I certainly don't speak that kind of language. But if you could get past that, it was a powerful story. Later, I saw it reproduced for a movie on television. Al Pacino played the lead role, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin. It's a tragic kind of story, almost like Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. It's about men who are trying to sell real estate over the telephone. They have names. They have phone numbers. People have gone to a big fair somewhere, and they've signed up for a free prize. You know when you do that, your name, address, phone number get put on all kinds of lists. So these real estate salespeople now have names and phone numbers, and they are desperately trying to get people they've never seen to buy real estate. The stakes are high. 
the winner of the contest gets a brand new Cadillac. Second prize, a set of steak knives. Third prize, you get fired. These are men who like each other, but they have families. They need the money. And the play is about how cutthroat they become, each trying desperately to win the Cadillac and not lose his job. Well, strangely, a couple of years ago, David Mamet wrote an essay in which he said, I am no longer a brain-dead liberal. Wow. That's not what artistic types usually say. They tend to the more liberal side of the spectrum. So there are some now who've taken their shots at David Mamet. They say he's lost his mind. He says no, he's become more aware of who he is. He is a Jew. He belongs to a temple in California. After 9-11, he said, he started going more. His rabbi started recommending books for him to read, and he read. He said liberals make a couple of really big mistakes. One is they don't believe in the force of evil. They believe all the world's problems are a matter of misunderstandings. If we all go to school and we all learn how to sit down and be reasonable, all the world's problems go away. And the second big mistake they make, he said, is that they believe everything can be solved. Everything can be worked out. I'm older, David has written. I'm wiser. What happened to New York City 9-11 was evil. And what happened to six and a half million of my grandparents was evil. We have to face up. There are a lot of really bad people in the world. Number three. Paul, Silas, missionaries who've made this bold step crossing over the Straits of Bosphorus, leaving Asia, moving into Europe. It's midnight. They've been severely beaten. They've been thrown into prison, hands and feet locked into stocks. They're singing hymns, praying to God. Suddenly, there's an earthquake. Doors sprung open, all locks now broken. Two men, far from home, praying to God. On our vacation last month, Gail and I had decided that we'd never really spent much time in New York City. We'd been in and out of the city a day or two, but never had we given New York City as much time as we've given Paris or Rome or London, other places. So we read. Uh, Dr. Spencer and Mary Wheeler Brown loaned us some of their books about New York City. And we read and read and read, trying to make every day and night count as much as we could. We saw some really wonderful things. We've discovered that sometimes you wait a lifetime to be in a particular museum to see three paintings you've always wanted to see and they're on loan to San Francisco when you're there. 
But sometimes you get lucky, and you go to a museum, and they have things you didn't expect to see. And this time we got to the Frick Collection in New York City, and there was a special, special showing of the works of Rembrandt. A whole room down below the regular beautiful home that's been turned into a gallery, a whole room of nothing but drawings, paintings of Rembrandt. Gail and I have seen Rembrandt paintings before, but what a collection this was. And some of Gail's favorite paintings of Rembrandt are his self-portraits. He painted himself every decade of his adult life. They started nearly 400 years ago, you understand. And he was a young man, but dressed very poorly. And the next decade, he's dressed a little better, not so young. And the next decade, a little better, older. And at the Frick Collection, the oldest known self-portrait of Rembrandt. A reviewer said, it is an exquisitely, exquisitely beautiful painting of an exquisitely unbeautiful person. He wasn't handsome. Rembrandt was not a showstopper when he walked into a room based on his looks. And yet the, the blousy shirt that he's wearing, magnificent, beautiful jacket of pants, a little cap upon the top of his head. Beautiful. Beautiful. And then this reviewer went on to say, you can see in the eyes, this painting 350 years old, you can see in the eyes he knows, I'm old. I'm going to die. What does it mean? What does it mean? Paul and Silas had decided God is the meaning. God is the purpose. God is the answer. God is the future. And at midnight, they're singing and praying. Number four, the jailer. Earthquake. Doors sprung. Locks uh, broken open. He wakes up, grabs his sword, ready to do himself in. Paul screams out, no, don't do that. We're all still here. And so he rushes into Paul and Silas, trembling, Luke says, fell down on his knees. Oh, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to keep the Romans from killing me for losing all of their prisoners? And they answer a spiritual question. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. Notice the words they put together here. Jesus, the name of a flesh and blood person, Mary's child, who grew up at Nazareth, who was baptized by John, who called disciples, who taught and preached and healed and raised folks from the dead, who was himself crucified. That one, and right next to it is that word, Lord. It's the one we have in the mosaic in the south end of the great hall, kurios. It corresponds to the Hebrew word in the north end, Adonai representative of the Eye, Asher Eye, at the burning bush, I am who I am. And that one, we Gentile Christians hold, was made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. Believe in that one, that the one true God has revealed himself more clearly in Jesus of Nazareth than ever before. And they believed. They 
there was something inside of him that resonated with that. Something inside of him that said, this is true. This is true. And his whole family rejoiced that he had come to believe in God. Michael Lindvall is pastor of Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City. Gail and I do not rest on our vacations. We go hard. You go hard, you go home. That's the way we do it. Early morning to late in the evening. We saw Yankee ball games. We saw plays. We saw museums. We stayed in some six, seven hours in a museum. We really saw a lot of things. We saw a lot of things. And every once in a while she'd say, oh, no, here's another church. She knew I was going in. I love beautiful churches. And so we saw St. Patrick's and we saw Fifth Avenue Presbyterian and we saw St. Thomas and we saw John Street United Methodist. We saw a lot of beautiful churches. Brick Presbyterian is a great church. Dr. Michael Linvall has written about a time when his son Ben was only seven. Twenty years ago, Ben was seven. And he said they had just opened the new Jacob Javits Convention Center back then and they were having a big auto show I asked Ben if he'd like to go with me, and he said he would. I had never seen so many people in one place in my life, he said. I'm standing there looking at these new Ford automobiles they're showing, and suddenly Ben is not there. There are more people than I can see. I start frantically pushing my way through these people, calling his name, calling his name. I cannot find him. I rush to security. I say, you've got to call the name of my son, over the loudspeaker and tell him to meet me in a certain place. No, we can't do that. They said there are far too many people here. We can't do that. Go to the lost child department. He went to the lost child department. Ben was not there. He went to door after door. Guards, when the son was described, no, no, no one but that. I don't believe it's come out my door. He said, I was pushing my way through that crowd as fast as I could frantically for two hours. Sweat was running down my face. I was frantic. Suddenly I got back to the point I had left him, and there he was. He was watching a six-foot-tall robot describe a new Mercury Cougar. And when I called his name, he turned and ran into my arms. And only when I let him lean back just a little did I see him blink his eyes twice and a tear come to his cheek. And I said, Ben, were you scared? And he said, not too much. I knew you would come. 